the Davises have had a baby, but they're not sending out any announcements. Most new parents are a little scared when they have a baby. The Davises are terrified. You see, there's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. It's alive. It's alive. Don't see it alone. Please. Rated PG. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Chris Honeywell is an internet loudmouth. And that's why Look Who's Talking To will always be my favorite baby film of all time. Hated and reviled by his few remaining friends, he catches the attention of Thomas DJ, perhaps the world's most cunning supervillain. Ensconced in his ultra-scientific hideout, with only his robot army and stunning assistant to keep him company, DJ springs into action. What is this idiocy? Virginia used a molecular transmigration beam to bring this fool to me! Virginia trains the hellish mechanism, and with a clap like thunder, and in a blinding psychedelic light, Chris Honeywell stands before his tormentor. Normally, I do not suffer fools, but I see beyond the yawning chasm of ignorance that is your brain and the endless sluice of sewage which is your mouth that they form a basic animal intelligence that I may be able to mold to my own devices. Uh, okay. Therefore, in my mercy, I offer you two choices. Instant painless disintegration, or you study grindhouse movies at my feet now! Choose! Uh, I choose not disintegration. So be it. In one month, I shall assign you a movie to watch and will summon you again. Be ready, or the consequences shall be swift and merciless. Right, but how do I get to... Now go! And thus began one of the most dangerous and unpredictable endeavors in evil sciencing. The Honeywell Experiment! Virginia, summon the subject! I'm starting to get a sense of it now. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Last time it was just happy redneck good times. Now, not so much. But I had to give you happy redneck good times. Happy redneck good times. Because you you endured thriller or cruel picture. 
And that's also why I gave you happy 70s black exploitation good times and Dark Count Shredders before it. I've recommended that film to about a dozen people personally <laughs> since seeing that. Dark Town Strutters is just, yeah. Um, unfortunately, this is not a happy occasion. No. Um, I, I have been, I'm very proud of the fact that I have met most of my heroes in my life. Uh, I got Warren Zevon to do an answer machine message for me, for God's sakes. Uh, but unfortunately, one of my my biggest heroes passed away. I didn't realize he was as old as he was. I thought he was a little bit younger. He was 77 years old. He is one of the. We were going to get. We were going to get to him eventually, but we're getting to him earlier rather than later. Uh, uh, to to properly discuss this man because he is a giant, a giant in the Grindhouse cinema history. Uh, a man who is was instrumental in the creation of the black exploitation genre. Uh, a man who uh, got kicked out of New York, never worked with a permit, um, is responsible for unleashing Eric Bogosian on the national screens and uh, creating one of the most terrifying TV commercials 10-year-old Tom ever saw. I'm talking of course of the great the, the magnificent Larry Cohen I was only six years old imagine me oh, oh I God. was duking my drawers <laughs> I I mean I remember I remember that we lived in we were renting an old farmhouse we had black and white TV I remember standing in front of the TV and watching that sl- I, slowly turning baby Larry, bassinet yes. and the and- Scream right at the the, the, the side of the, the claw. That baby, that that animal baby whale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was terrifying. It was so scary that I remember be, my going to a party that my parents went to. With you know, they went to visit their friends, but they sort of were having a party, and uh, they had the stereo set up outside in the 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 radio version of that ad came on and of course I immediately saw the picture and I was just like ah so to me from six years old on that was that movie was potentially one of the scariest things that I would ever like could you know had it in my imagination I of course was there was no way my parents were going to take me to see It's Alive some R-rated movie also has one of the greatest taglines there's something wrong with the Davis baby. It's a lot live. And, uh, like, okay, I, I, I just gotta tell my, I have to tell okay. my, it's a, it's a live tale, my baby tale. Right. I, for, for years, by the time I got in, um, it had to be my first, like, first year of middle school. Um, I had a friend, and and I can't wait to uh, tell him uh, I was talking about you the other day, uh, George Clark. And George Clark's parents had no problem letting him watch R-rated movies. And he got to actually go see It's Alive when it was in the theaters. And he he would tell all of us, you know, the entire storyline 
of It's Alive, and he did such a great job that as I watched the movie, <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God, this part's good. Oh, a milk truck. A I know what's going to happen truck. next. I know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, obviously, you do know what's going to happen next, but I was like, I just, yeah. I, and I could almost hear him describing, you know, what happened in the movie, and it sounded like the most terrifying thing. I had ever heard in in my life you know it just sounded horrifying and so you know for years and years it was like this movie is going to be and of course it, it would take a savaging like from the you know as the years went by from the, like the Siskel and Ebert type people as yeah. this violent schlocky movie and stuff and rubber baby and stuff like that so I would start and then the sequels coming out you know, Island yeah. of the Alive is out and and so I was like, well, you know, this is going to be a disappointment when I see it <laughs> because it's going to be so cheesy and terrible that, you know, it's not going to live up to my fevered imagination of a of a six year old. But in some ways it did. And way more. I was not terrified. But boy, I really like this movie. The thing about Larry Cohn two things that you need to, to take away from uh, uh, when discussing Larry Cohen. First off is you have to acknowledge that he is a New York born and bred filmmaker. Even though this film takes place in Los Angeles, there is still a kind of cynicalness that only New Yorkers have in this film. And the other thing to understand is that Larry Cohen is at his best when he's not really focusing on the monsters and the blood and the horror. Right. Because this film, even though there is a uh, mutant baby played by a rubber model, the story goes that um, Cohen hired Rick Baker to d design the special effects, and he came in with this rubber mock-up of what he thought the baby would look like. And Cohen was so impressed with the rubber mock-up he never commissioned him to do anything more. Oh, no. Um, so you'll notice that there's very little baby in this movie about a killer baby. Yes. Um, and to the, to the benefit of the movie. Yes. I think. yes. Even and, and okay. Yeah. It is a rubber baby. It's yeah. not, but he does a good job of keeping it saw that keeping a few inches of Vaseline on the lens and keeping the shot short. And for the time that it came out, it's pretty, it's pretty effective. Yeah. But the thing is, this is not a film about a, about a killer baby on the rampage. It's actually about a couple who have basically a pregnancy that does not go the way they expect and how they handle it. This is, you could have taken out the killer baby and the cops and, and made it uh, a child with Down syndrome. Yes. And you could have had many of the same story beats. Yeah. I mean, there's overt, you know, there's an, uh, a cop at one his, his, who goes, you know, it's the 70s. So he's like, I, you know, uh. What is it? My cousin's got a kid that's retarded, you know? Yeah, exactly. 
And but I mean, there's in this movie they talk about abortions, pollutions, people who don't have kids, right. kids with developmental disabilities. There's so many sort of things. There's there's. Uh, I think that there's references to uh, pharmaceuticals at one point. Yes, and there's a you know, there's the you know the the scientists who are sniffing around you know wanting to get their hands on the baby and stuff like that, which I think was world building for sequels, you know, or at least that's where the sequels I think went. We will touch on the sequels briefly. Uh, I've seen both of them. Um, they're not as good. Be right up front, but um, but that this is obviously Cohen was interested in exploring this dynamic, and as we have said many times, sometimes it's easier to explore a tough subject under the guise of it being a horror film or a science fiction film, and he manages to I think cover it very well. Um, in, in this film, and I think that's the crux. That's the, the emotional heft that that it's alive has. Not uh, you know, you know, a baby attacking a milkman and milk and blood um, mixing together. Yes, there was there was a that was one of my only like cinematic problems with this movie. Yeah, was the truck was red. <laughs> so. So when so like it wasn't as rudely apparent as say in a Jallo movie where they'd make the truck white so you could really see the blood, right. but he had like the blood he was using was very realistic blood. I noticed that like the blood drips on the floor were kind of clotty blood drips and not, you know, phosphorescent paint drips like a lot of times it, it was. Right. But um. And, and not very bloody either, you know. I mean, just sort of the baby's injuries would be just sort of like some blood smeared on somebody's uh, you know, throat. Or... It's funny. You, you refer to it as an R-rated film, but it was actually rated PG. Mm. But it, it's kind it might of as well have been R for, to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, part of it is because, and this is something, Larry Cohen was indefinitely in the William Castle mode during the 70s. Um, in that he liked doing stunts and he was very effective at creating ad campaigns and such. When we get to Q in 1982, a film that he made because he got fired from the set of Ivan the Jury. Um, he had people stencil on the curbs of New York streets. Q is coming. And people were like, Q? What's Q? You know? <laughs> and wanted Then in 1985, when he did The Stuff, which is a film about, which is a, a Invasion of the Body Snatcher-esque consumerist nightmare thing. Um, he wanted New World Pictures, who financed the film, to show these commercials he shot for the stuff, just like the, the product, by TV time, and play them so people would get fooled. We're in Andre's exclusive continental restaurant, which caters to only the most discriminating clientele. How's the food, sweetheart? Nuts. That's nice. 
Where's the stuff? The stuff is here now. Great new day sensation. Light and free now. But to elevation. Enough is never enough. Enough is never enough of the stuff. The stuff. The taste that makes you hungry for more. The stuff. Taste that delivers. Enough is never enough. And then lead into the the, the, the um way ahead and, of its time. Way ahead of its time has has uh, Cecil Cecil Trackenberg over at uh, Good Bad Flicks first brought that one to my attention. And uh, go down to his YouTube channel and check him out because he's very good. Um, he said that it was basically it could have been the first example of viral marketing. Yeah, yeah. But um. It's a lot. It, it was an effective ad campaign because it freaked little kids like us out. Yeah. Um. I mean, what a taboo. It this. I, I mean, nowadays we we've seen lots of horrifying stuff in movies, yeah. but you know, babies are almost. Oh, we. It's funny over on the horror vault. Right. We just recorded an episode about. Uh, the new Halloween movie, and there's a scene where Michael Myers is on a rampage, and he walks through a room, and there's a baby in a crib, and he passes it by. Right. And uh, and 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 this and this movie has like ch- like a, a you know in in the delivery room. Yeah. And, and a baby is the killer, and a whole bunch of adults just ready to fill that baby full of lead. Lead. And you'll and, notice, by the way, that that the first act where we lead up to the uh the birth of the baby there's like no i mean this this film has a score by bernard herman it was one of his last film scores the man who did psycho and yet cohen knows to hold back on the music because he wants to create this almost documentary like feel for him so that when the shock happens it, co- it happens all the more See, I thought maybe I'd seen a cut version because my friend's description of the baby giving birth and killing everybody yeah. in the room was so much more graphic than what happened in the movie. The movie is so chaotic, you really yeah. don't know what's going on and how everybody like there's cops there all you know, but but the cop that you know there it's it's just weirdly done but he of course he saw it when he was six years old too. he was the same yeah. age, age as me so he his brain filled in all the blanks and transferred him over to us so that scene was way less um although for 1974 it must have been just horrifically explicit yeah. and and gritty and scary there's there's that moment when he's walking down the corridor and and the the doctor and the scrubs comes out and stumbles out and falls and you yeah know something is just not right it's it, it, cohen knew how to Cohen knew how to shoot the shit out of a scene. Yeah, that and that was edited very strangely, but effectively, because it brought you into his frame of mind, that that confusion of what's going on. Nothing here adds up. Right. Something's wrong, but there's something wrong with my wife, my child, or both. Right. You know. And, and, and I should also give him credit for casting, because. Thing I like about John Ryan and Sharon Farrell is that they're not Hollywood handsome. 
they're normal looking people yes and, and i mean john ryan especially is a strong choice he yeah. he really he really does a great job in this movie he uh, he carries this movie he is well, the it is his, it story, is his so. movie yeah i and, mean i understand completely why cohen felt compelled to bring him back for it lives again um even that film as i said is not as good but you had to bring Frank Davis back because Frank Davis was the spine of the first film. And I, I, I can't help but really like this movie really feels like it has elements. It, it feels like it could be a earlier, milder Cronenberg movie. Made about the same time as Cronenberg uh, was making Shivers and Rabbit. Right, and but it, it's about five years ahead of The Brood. It reminds yeah. me most of The Brood, okay. and and the just the there, there's a surreal at, 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 at the very be, at the very beginning of the movie. I love the the the, the title intro to the movie where right. it, it's like there's cells. It, I thought yeah. it was going to be a uh, take on like uh, cells mutating or sperm cells that were wrong or something, and then it turns right. out to be flashlights of like a mob chasing something. Yeah, I thought that was great, but then when you get to the family and you see these people are well adjusted, happy, and just generally like decent people. Right, they're decent and they're living a happy, happy life, and they're well adjusted, and they and they like each other. There, it's there's. You're not really getting a lot of tension. You don't think they're being faky about it. And the dialogue's very naturalistic and it and sounds like almost improvised. Yeah, and once again, no music. Yeah. So it's it looks like you're watching like some sort of you know, some sort of documentary, some sort of T V show on PBS at the time. About here's a one family's life. And everything makes linear sense in that 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 portion of it but once it gets go once it hits that scene of chaos from that point on the whole movie takes on what i gotta feel is like a purposely and this is what really excited me about it because my friend who gave me a six-year-old reaction of it right didn't convey any of this you know of of you know the personal things of the adults because he had no conce- his conception was with the baby right who's the baby gonna kill so right. you have this whole thing with the the you know with with the guy the di- and the way the dialogue is and mm-hmm. like lots of close up shots with with out of focus backgrounds and it just stop stops it does if you like think too hard about like could this play out in reality if a you know leaping <laughs> fairly intelligent killer baby existed was this how it would play out it it wouldn't it wouldn't hold up to that but as no. like sort of a fever dream mm-hmm. and with like this like david lynchian sort of stuff right. where you know all like the doctors there's people having just sort of like bland dialogue mm-hmm. then there's a lot of... there's there's the, the the one exchange he has with the exterminator yeah 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 where the exterminator puts forward the the idea of yeah you know 
all we do when we poison our our world is we make the things we're trying to kill tougher. Which I think is very telling. Very Nietzschean. Yeah. That which doesn't kill mutant babies make them stronger. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, I mean that that's picked up in the in the sequel quite a bit about the idea that this is possible that these babies are possibly an evolution. But it it reminds me a little bit of like Blue Velvet in a yeah. way, where this you know, okay you have this decent guy and somehow he's a decent guy and a PR guy. I don't yeah. know how that works out, I but mean, he we is. See him, we see him giving the money, the money that the guy lost in the machine. Yes. So we know that he's not a bad person. Yeah, no, he's annoyed by the guy, but he wants to help him. He has that. There's this general, there's a general like that, that 70s casual feel of it where, you know, hey, we're a bunch of guys. Let's play poker and shoot the shit while our wives give birth. And uh, and some slick leisure suits, I I might add (laughs) in this one and smoking everywhere. Smoke away wherever you are. Well, I think that was a conscious choice. Once again, another conscious right. choice because right. I, I think part of his, the- a minor part of his of Cohen's thesis is that the world is a far, far more dangerous place now than it used to be. Yeah, it's filled with toxins, and it's all stuff that we're yeah you know, we're giving them to ourselves. Yeah. But um, yeah, it just has this whole like purposely like where you know, I, I know he purposely totally went from like happy household to right from where the, the kid his kid kind of reminded me of the beaver actually in right. some ways um but a 70 70s beaver kid and uh into the into the hellscape where all of a sudden like doctors nurses and cops are just the most horrible people you know this this guy's Every every bit of any decency in him is completely tested by people like that. You know, he's surrounded by cops going like, oh, yeah. Oh, no, we cannot wait to put a bullet in your baby. Yeah, <laughs> no, we're, we're really looking forward to just shooting it. As a matter of yeah. fact, we're just having a discussion about how whether we should just shoot it or if we should shoot it and blow it up real good. <laughs> You're OK with that, right? <laughs> Well, that, that's here. the interesting thing. That's the interesting thing, of course, about, you know, Frank handles it by just denying. That's not my baby. Yeah, it's almost like he does. He does the stages of grief for this, you know, denial, shooting. Yeah. Acceptance. To the point where you have you have uh, his wife saying, why is it so important that you be the one that kill it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh. I mean, this this could all be, you know, I, I mean, the, the, a metaphor for them having, you know, a, a child that's developmentally disabled. And and, and I and I like that, like, you know, me, that the feeling that like to him, he's like, we're such we are such decent people mm-hmm. that this could not happen to us. You can't right. take her and me and put it together and, and, and have that have this until he kind of like really lays eyes on it and then by that time and and i love it there it could have been like 
uh, it, it, maybe if it was a little more modern, they would have had like the awful parts of them come up and like find out that their marriage had been on the rocks, but they were mm-hmm. glossing over it. But no, well, his wife, does, his wife goes crazy. Yeah. But he's his still wife there goes for the other, opposite, the, the total opposite. She's like desperate to create normalcy again. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and I, and I like that you find out that she sort of, she was sort of behind the back, like, you know, talking to the baby, you know, colluding with the baby. And, uh, but it's just very at its core. And I've always pictured this as an ugly, brutal movie. It's a very humanistic movie. It's a very like, in a way it's cruel, but it's a kind movie. It's about like, you know, at the, at the end, this guy's just like, no, this is like a, you know, this is my child. And, comes full circle um and my friend also didn't mention he he mentioned like the way he put he told the story of the baby's death is the guy came out of the sewer and when they were about to shoot him he threw the baby up in the air and they shot the baby he didn't mention that the guy did the total awesome move of chucking the baby at <laughs> the most asshole cop there right <laughs> And at the end, the other cops going like, well, that guy was an asshole. Well, we'll drive you home, dude. <laughs> yeah. It could have been very unpleasant in a Lars Van Trier sort of way. But the, actually, the, the baby hijinks kind of break up the real horror of the movie, which is what this guy's going through. inside itself and then watching all the people around him and just being like everybody around me is a piece of shit and then it's like oh the milkman yay (laughs) the thing I love about the way the baby behaves is that it doesn't really behave like a monster Mm -mm. It, it just seems to behave like a scared little kid and it's like I'm hungry. Here's some milk. Let's let me go get some milk. You know. And the la- the lady in the park. Yeah. I, I I thought, um, if she didn't scream, if she was like, oh, who are you? Are you okay? What's wrong yeah. with you? And thought maybe okay, this is somebody's mutated baby, but it's still a baby. It's horrifying, but it's you know I've seen the Elephant Man. Well, actually, she hadn't seen the Elephant Man at this point, but you know. And had been like, you know, come here, come here. He probably would have come in, come there and like fall asleep in her arms. But she yeah. freaks out and scream. Everybody freaks out and screams. Mm-hmm. It's the and, Frankenstein thing. Yeah, and he's attracted. The baby is attracted more and more to the things that remind him of his family. That's why he ends up in the in the school. I, I like I mean, how they set up that he might be like the baby, you, like. You know, I started thinking, okay, mom and dad can handle the baby. But then I was thinking maybe there might be some little sibling rivalry thing where this kid was in danger. Right. Cats, not actually considered part of the family by baby, by mutant babies, apparently. Yeah, apparently not. But you knew, come on, it was, it was a 1974 yeah. film. You knew the second you saw that Siamese cat. that It, it was, was going to bite it, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the seriously, you know, I think that in those days they also were slipping, slipping those animals, some of those animal sedatives, because that was one of the most manageable cats ever. <laughs> like I, that guy just, the kid had his arm over the 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 
cat and the guy just pulled it up like a limp dish rag. <laughs> and then they probably gave it an extra dose for its death scene so you could still yeah. see its tongue move a little bit as it lolled out. Right. Um, but I mean, this is what... It, it's it, it's all about this film is definitely all about uh you know john ryan and sharon farrell trying to deal with this and dealing with the celebrity everybody you know writ large of you know oh, they their baby didn't turn out right you know it, it turns on the radio and they're like and blah 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 I'm so and so street you know yeah. he's just like lights a cigarette and he's like they named me and yes and and you know and his boss like to his face is just like yeah oh, this will pass and blah 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 Let's clean out his office yeah see he will he will not be back yeah and you you know it, it goes into this almost exaggerated hellscape of a world for him which is what I imagine with any kind of trauma at childbirth you know whether you lose a baby or you have a baby that's horribly sick or or yeah. you know or or developmentally impaired, whatever, you know, it, it's that, well, I guess it's just grief that puts you into, it makes, it colors your whole world around you. And this movie is very good at conveying it without making it cripplingly depressing, you know? And, uh, it's very well filmed and it's very, it has a lot of like, um, backgrounds out of focus so there's a lot of like red flashing cop lights it's yeah. just it's just got a very consistent theme of just sort of it reminds me a little bit of jacob's ladder too in right. some weird ways well that, that seems that, that that whole aesthetic of the, the slightly grainy film stock the uh the out of focus shots uh those are all kind of indicative of what of Cohen's, you know, auteur method, so to speak. Yeah, uh, it's very it, claustrophobic. Yeah, it's very funny that that when we get into the '90s and he starts uh, shooting more on uh, better film, better film stocks, something kind of goes out of it. You know, I can totally see that. Um, he's just, I, and the thing is, it, it's obvious to me, supposing the, 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 the legend goes that he would drive around Hollywood all day with, in, in his car was just stacks and stacks of scripts he wrote. And he would bring one script into a, a prospective producer and he'd go like, no, nah, I'm not interested in that. I'll be right back. But he was, he was a man of ideas. He, and I think that part of the problem with It's Alive 2, uh, It's Alive, also known as It Lives Again, is that he doesn't have a, a clear idea as to what he wants to do, other than, well, I better make a sequel to this, because it's, you know, it well, was really successful. Well, I think it, it reminds me a little bit of the Phantasm movies, and yeah. not so much Phantasm 2, which was sort of like a copy of, uh, like, a bigger budget continuation of phantasm one right. but phantasm one had that feel of it could all be a dream or dreams yeah. within dreams it was very surreal and you got the feeling that there was a lot of like 
of the story was basically symbolic and stuff like that. And as it went on, it got more and more literal and got more and yeah. more like, oh, well, actually, the tin man, er, the tin man, the tall man is, you know, from another dimension. And they, they covered that in this in the first ones. But yeah. it could have been, you know, it was the logic of a kid having a dream and stuff. And when they started taking it literally, right. it loses some of that atmosphere of it. And this movie, you know, can be taken as literally a couple has a killer baby or it could be taken as. A whole bunch of other things or it's just a mood piece almost and uh yeah and as a self-contained unit it's kind of perfect you know yeah i mean i see i for example that last line in the film where they say they another one just has just been born in seattle uh I, i'm sure a lot of people look at it and think and, and look at it has sequel bait but I think that was keeping in with that minor theme that he had going, that the world is just getting a, a dangerous place. Yeah. That, this, is a, this isn't an isolated incident. Don't right. Know. That, that this, is not, uh, this is not a freak happenstance, that this is the beginning of the next step that humanity has to do to survive. And, uh, and it, it's, it gives it a little invasion of the body snatchers feel to it you know so yeah. um I that they remade this film in 2009 yes as a matter of fact when i went to watch this movie mm-hmm. i had gotten the 2009 version by mistake and started watching but why is this why is this so much why are the oh no i see 2009 on it and yeah. i quick went and found the 74 version yes. thinking this cannot be good <laughs> yeah no no it, it is not good uh supposedly cohen offered his original script and offered to do uh do a pass on their script and was refused and he has it, it's first off um the davis the, the, the couple that that are that stand in for the davis are too pretty Biju Phillips plays uh, the Sharon oh. Farrell role. Oh, jeez! And it's it's just real. It just gets everything wrong. She she becomes Hollywood crazy, not credibly crazy like Sharon Farrell did. And um, Larry Cohen used to, he would he famously said, um, "I would advise anybody who loves my version of the film." To cross the street to avoid having to watch the new one. <laughs> they should have let him have a pass at the yeah, script. Yeah, <laughs> they should have let him have a pass at the script because, I mean, he was a, a, he was writing even though he stopped directing sometime in the aughts, the early aughts. They, with the exception of an hour-long episode of um, Masters of Horror that he did with with his. Uh, Robert De Niro to his Martin Scorsese, uh, Michael Moriarty called Pick Me Up. And I think part of that was because of the death of his sister. His sister was his producer. And I saw her name on there, yes. Yeah, she, she's, she doesn't, she, she was going under her married name, but she was, she died under, we'll just say, unpleasant circumstances. And I think something went out of him when that happened. 
that 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 was a, a a collaboration that he had that kept him going, and so he stopped directing. But he was writing up until the very end. He wrote uh, scripts for NYPD Blue. He wrote um, an excellent. And for those of you people like me who are fans of the Ed McBain uh, 87th Precinct novels, he wrote, in my opinion, the best 87th Precinct movie ever made, uh, Heat Wave. Um, and he wrote famously what is referred to as the Communication Trilogy, uh, which are three unrelated films about modern communications. Uh, phone booth, cellular, and messages deleted. But uh, he he was, I'm sure that if he had done a pass on the 2009 version, uh, it, it would have been a lot more interesting than it turned out to be. Andy wouldn't have talked shit about the movie when it was yeah. <laughs> on, a, when it, on its release. Well, not during its release, maybe not after. Not if he was on the press junket, no. Yeah, <laughs> no. I, I remember once, well, the, the, the one time I got got to got to interact with Steve Gerber, because I, I was asking for, I, I wanted to do, dedicate a story that I wrote for uh, Byron Price's The Ultimate Hulk to him. And he, he declined. He said, really, no, I, I appreciate the, the offer. And I asked him, I said, when you were on, when you were telling people how great the Howard the Duck movie was, did you really believe that? He said, well, sometimes you you wonder if you're like the kid in the Emperor's New Clothes. And you think, well, everybody else will love it. I just think it's stupid. You know? <laughs> and I, I'm sure that's what would have happened. I'm sure that that, that Larry would Because he was a very humble... If you've ever seen footage of, of Cohen being interviewed, or uh, there's a, a documentary that was recently made, thank God, before he died, called King Cohen, uh, you'll see that he's a very humble guy. He's very down to earth, and I think that's another reason why I, I respond so much to his work is that it feels like the work of a down to earth person. And, and I an think, honest, uh, it's yeah. honest, even though it has gimmicky stuff in a lot of it. He realizes he's he he really understands the budgetary realm that he strata that he was in. Yeah. And understood that, like, if you want to make money with this movie, you're going to have to throw it, you know, a killer baby or yeah. a, a kaiju monster or yeah. so, an alien. Or, and... or some weird creature. Supposedly, according to Cohen, the intention was that the, uh, that the stuff of the stuff was something created by the Earth to get rid of us. That it wasn't like an alien, but it was. But there was also God. Oh well, I was thinking God. Yeah, God told yeah, me. Yeah, to. God told me to, which is which is another. He was very interested in faith. He was because that's because there are several films that he uh, he did that that addressed religion and faith in a direct way. And God told me to is probably the most direct. See, I I I heard. I'd heard about, you know, I knew who Larry Cohen was, obviously, but I'd heard, I remember when Q came out, it got a lot of good reviews. I remember Siskel and Ebert going, this is a low-budget movie, but this really has a lot more going on. 
about it, and they're like, but warning, it's got some gore in it or whatever. But Yeah, there is, and, this, there is a, a shot in that film of a flayed body that is still kind of ooky to me today. And that's yeah. after I've endured modern-day special effects. And uh, and so that was always going to be the first one I was of his that I sought out. And I watched it uh, on YouTube, and on the sidebar popped up, God God told me to, and I'm like, oh, I vaguely remember hearing about this movie. And then I watched that, and I couldn't tell which one of them I enjoyed more. And then I realized this guy's this guy was a serious... He's the kind of filmmaker that I like. Yeah. He, because he, you know, he he wanted to make money or whatever, as any filmmaker do would do, but, you know, so you can make more movies or right. whatever. But he honestly tried to put more into it, you know, writing-wise, writing you know. He did movies that he was interested in. Yeah. Even the films that, that he wrote, like Maniac Cop. Which he, which he wrote, was he, he, there was obviously something serious. It was an exploitation idea, but there was obviously something serious he wanted to talk about, which is what happens when the, the trust you're supposed to have in city services breaks down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, go ahead. And, and he knows how to play with the, with the everyday things that, you know that are that are horrifying yeah like childbirth yeah. like when the when the doctor comes in when she and and you know they'd slowly been sort of hinting because she's just like this feels different this feels yeah. different and uh the doctor comes in and is and completely just dis dismissive yeah. of her you know yeah. he's just like yeah yeah okay it feels different well it's big you know and he's yeah. just like well whatever and he's and and at points he has sort of you know just sort of you know, they're there type of, he, 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 he mellows out a little bit. He's probably getting into his doctor groove, but it's all still pretty fake. Right. And, uh, you know, just, I, I mean, just all the elements of everything that happens in an operating room is so terrifying anyway. And this has, you know, okay, she's laying there. She's, she's naked. She's basically naked from the waist down at least. Terrible. And they're and and they're just like whoop. You know, the the first scene yeah. in the delivery room, they're spreading her legs apart, and you right. can sort of see through the sheet that like the 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 side of her sides and stuff, and she's exposed, and it's just very uncomfortable and icky, and and it, and of course keeps getting progressively so very quickly, and he just knows how to take those everyday things. That, that and incorporate them into a wider horror conceit. Like God told me to like just the the idea of a sniper, you know, yeah. on top of a building was a huge frightening thing in in that time because of the or guy. That sequence at the St. Patrick's Day parade with, of course, this is of course everybody knows this about the film. It, it, it had a cameo by Andy Kaufman in it before he was Andy Kaufman. Uh, but the the, the that that sequence in God Told Me To, uh, which was done without permits, by the way, which means when you see cops drinking beer, those are actual cops actually drinking beer. But th there's, a, there's a sense of life. I think that's probably why he, I, I can't say for sure, but I think that's probably why he never bought into uh, 
permits and uh, working with the, 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 the New York Department of Motion Picture and Television because there would be an artificiality. And it's, it's, yeah. Um, the films, the two films that I consider his worst are the film, uh, one of which is called Wicked Stepmother, which is the film that killed Betty Davis. Um, is the one are the ones that are that it seem to be the most Hollywood esque and artificial. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might it, it it might be the difference between a band that's wonderful live, but in the studio they can't capture the essence of it. It takes away, you know. And there's got to be an atmosphere of shooting live where you could get in trouble. You got to have your shit together. Uh, and have it planned out and you have to have a crew that's working together and you got to get in there and get it done. And then you're going to have to also probably improvise quite yeah. a bit and be ready to do that. And is- it just sets a different, it's a different atmosphere than like, okay, you know, 6am we start setting up the lights and right. running the electrical wires and all that. And, Making sure, you know, you know, bring the donuts for the cops who are blocking off the street. I mean, it amazes me some of the shots that he gets. There, there is even as late as the ambulance, which is, I think, 1995, uh, which is a it's an OK film. It's OK. Um, it's definitely one of his minor flicks. And there is a shot of Eric Roberts, who play, who plays the hero, walking down a very crowded Fifth Avenue. In um, during lunchtime, I mean, there are like thousands of. It looks like there are thousands of people on the street, and he's following him for like a good two to three minutes with a with a handheld camera. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's a steady cam because if I remember correctly, it, I haven't seen it for a while, but it looks uh, fairly fairly smooth. But I can't. Imagine how he got that shot without B getting in trouble. You know? Like, you just keep moving. He was moving on the move, I guess. Yeah. I always wonder if in those shots, if any of the people, you know, who were walking around that day and remember just seeing, like, you know, you're going to see the cameraman and stuff. Yeah. And then, like, you're sitting in the movie screen and you're like, wait, there's <laughs> that's me. <laughs> If the cop's a, like, oh, is that you, O'Malley, drinking that beer? <laughs> I, I'm sure that they had a, a lot of – I'm sure that, that, that if he was alive today and we could sit down with him, he would have a story similar to the one that Brian Richard Smith taught us uh, – told us about that Camaro in uh, yes. San yes. Um I'm sure they were alive because even – I mean, he lived in – he lived in – in California most of his life. He, he started out uh, as a TV writer. He created, if you're familiar with the TV series The Invaders from the 60s, he created that. Um, but it's uh, you could tell. I mean, his best films are the ones that he, that he set in New York. His films that are, in, that are in New York, he obviously loves this city to death. And he knows how to make uh, make the city. I mean, I, I, the best part of uh, for me of Q of Q is not any of the monster sh- stuff. It's the reaction shots of the New Yorkers. 
like <laughs> yes. shot of the guy coming out of his car and he's wearing like a, a he's wearing like a white shirt and blood starts dripping down from him from above because Hugh just flew by and he's more concerned with the fact that there's blood got on his new car. That is typically New Yorker circa 1982. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Going backwards even into the 70s a yeah. few years. <laughs> it's it's I, I, I just love, I love the fact that he that he, he sh- these people look like real people. I mean, that cop looks like a real, you know, the, the Lieutenant Perkins. Yes. Looks, looks like a real cop. They all look like the world looks like it's lived in. It doesn't look like his, it's just a bubble. His his boss with the weird, with the, the super stuffed leisure, leisure, leisure suit. Oh, Michael and Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. He, what, what was up with his lip? Is that. <laughs> A, a, a feature of that actor or something, or did he have a feature of Sarah. And Sarah was a, a pro, at the time very prolific actor. He appeared in a lot of stuff. I, th- I think he's actually he's in an episode of Star of the original Star Trek. Oh, oh. I, think I can that, totally see that. I I I gotta look this up. I'm pretty sure. Okay, because I think it's it's also a pretty important. Um, yes, he was one of the, he was Kang. Oh. The Dove. Oh, no, that's totally not what I would have, uh, have thought of him looking like. Oh, wow, I was just talking about that episode with somebody the other and day. Returns to the role. Yeah, he was in Day of the Dove, he was Kang, and he shows up in that episode of, of Star Trek Voyager. Um, that, that kind of does some timey-wimey things with it. Playing the same character. But no Kodos. Oh, no. wait, that's the Simpsons. No, no. Yeah, he, he had, like, it looked like also, his... also, for, for those people who are into the, um, the DC animated universe, he's the voice of Victor Freeze. It's amazing how people will just sort of like segue into voice acting yeah. like that and you know their history of what put them into into voice acting. But yeah, his lip looked like it was almost like had a cut on it or or a scar on it or yeah. something. And I was like, "Oh, I wonder why they didn't put makeup on that or if it has anything to do with anything or no, it was just like something you would see a guy with something on his face." You know, it, it, it. I don't know if I would tell people to start with this one. If they, if you guys are not familiar with uh, Larry, first off, you should get familiar with Larry Cohen because he is, like I said, he is instrumental in '70s grindhouse cinema. Without him, we would not have Fred Williamson. We would not have black exploitation because his his film Black Caesar was one of the major films that made so much money that all of a sudden everybody wanted to do black exploitation. He reminds me in a little way of a more successful, probably, well, maybe not monetarily as such, but artistically version of Bob Clark. Yeah. Someone else who passed recently Mm -hmm. or in the last like year. 
it's a pity that 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 we're doing this for his um you know to to, pe- to memorialize his passing because it would have been interesting to have your uh your other friends on to talk about the the remake and do a compare and contrast like oh, Black Christmas. It's it's funny that we p- actually picked It's Alive and we did not pick It's Alive for the irony of the title either. Yeah. We picked it be- we we picked it because like you picked because you told me you never saw it. I never saw it and it was like legendary in my mind. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I mean, yeah, so why wouldn't I watch it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we would we may we might have been ended up with special effects, which is probably my favorite of his films, which is the film with Eric Bogosian playing, I'm convinced, Oliver Stone. I'm convinced that he patterned his character to Oliver Stone and the great Zoe Lund slash Tamerless um, in uh, in a great role. And uh, we'll be meeting Miss Lund slash Tamerless in the future when we... Uh, Talk about Abel Ferrara's Ms. 45. Well, when the when the stuff hit HBO, my my best friend in high school, Scott Gardner, the other two two freak, um, saw it on HBO and yeah. and was like, and ever since then I I penciled it down on my list of of movies I had to see. It was just like I really didn't think this movie was going to be good, and he he just loved it. Yeah. And, so that's also on my list of shame. So that's one I'll probably be checking out pretty soon. Well, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's available pretty well. And Eric Bogosian is in that film too for like about five seconds. I love movies like that. It's 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 a very they live premise, you know, sort of thing. So I'm I I enjoy movies like that. They they live and and the um and society that yeah. sort of stuff, you know. Well, so the great thing about the stuff is once it, it's much like it's alive. It's about something else. It's about why do we give in to consumerism so much? In that it's it's a it's a film about giving about how we tend to blindly follow trends because Madison Avenue and the, the corporations tell us to. And it, it it's it's actually was meant to be more of a comedy. And you can kind of see it because it's. it's I always awful. thought it was going to be sort of like Gremlins-style satire. Mm-hmm. Like all the adver- all the posters and ads yeah. always had that sort of. It looked like it was going to be a, a sort of, maybe not lighthearted but, jokey, um, jokey version of like the Blob with social yeah. commentary. Which is catnip to me, stuff like that. Well, I love yeah. stuff well, like you, that. You will enjoy it. You will enjoy it. And uh, it also features Brooke Adams in the shower. Which, uh, oh. Brooke Adams, I don't think anybody ever talks about her anymore. She was a very lovely woman. I had forgotten all about her existence till you just brought up her name. But, but, but you remember her being a very lovely woman, don't you? Yes, oh yeah. <laughs> my mind it made the also, assumptions you want to you want to think about uh, you want to talk about how 80s that film is Claire Peller oh the where's the beef lady the where's the beef lady is in it with Abe Vigoda 
The, she's the flip side of the coin of Larry Bud Melman. Yeah. So, um... She, that was ahead of, their, ahead of their time, like, ironic superstars, you know, that now they're all, like, ironic superstars. Yeah. I guess Tiny Tim was even before them. Yeah. And maybe Mrs. Miller before Tiny, Tiny Tim. And it once again reminds me that probably half of the stuff we talk about on this show... Most of the people who listen to it don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> Good to Google with you. Yeah. We'll explain some of it, but the rest of it, you can Google it up or go to better yet. Go to YouTube and just put it into YouTube because you'll probably see examples of it, which is there way more fun. Is a whole back in the 70s and 80s. There was a whole legion of spokes characters. That played television yes mr whipple mrs don't squeeze the charman don't squeeze the charman um the who is you soaking in it oh oh madge you're soaking in it madge yes from olive liquid madge yes um Crazy Eddie, of course, which I think we've discussed in the past. He's insane. He's insane. Insane. Played not by not by Eddie himself, but uh, you know, Jerry, you know, by um, the the Micromance Machine. The Micromachine Man here presenting the genuine, original, colossally collectible, most midget miniature episodes of the real things. Micromachine. Oh yeah, the fast talking guy. Fast talking guy. Yes. Um. But yeah, it's like that's how they used. To, I'm trying to think of who would be, because nowadays when you think of a, a I'm trying to think of a, a celebrity, a celebrity spokes character, and I can't really think of one really specific. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, in... I, 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 what comes to mind when I think of spokes characters is Morgan Smith, who was the who was the the character Red in all those Wendy's commercials, the hot redhead. I remember that. Yeah, I, th- that's well, then, you, then you had like. Ernest, all those oh, yeah. Ernest, all those Ernest movies came from commercial. Uh, those were like local commercials. Ernest that- was created specifically by by uh, Jim Varney solely as a character that could be plugged into any market to advertise anything. Yes, because it was just him talking to the Vern. Yeah. Hey, Vern. And. uh and it was just, and the camera was Vern, right. so he could go on there and talk about anything else. It was all just him being doofy yeah. and annoy, annoying his neighbor Vern. Mm-hmm. And, and that led to a series of movies and yeah. never any fame. And a TV show. Oh, Jesus, right. That's right. He had a kids' TV show called Hey Vern, It's Ernest. Yeah, I cannot. No, I then again Probably I don't really watch movie. modern TV. I, yeah. I I I usually use the internet to consume and streaming stuff, right. and you know like you know hard media or whatever. But the other bizarre kids show I can think of at this time, Pryor's Place. Yeah, that's uh... <laughs> the Richard Pryor kids show. That was a thing, folks. It's almost as unbelievable as the George Carlin sitcom. That I can see, though. George Carlin was sort of like Robin Williams, mm-hmm. where he could do his raunchy comedy, but yeah. then when he turned, but he had a really soft side to him, 
Well, the thing is, is that I could see George Carlin doing a sitcom in like the 70s or the 80s, but this was like, if I remember correctly, the George Carlin show was the 90s. When he was getting, he knew he was getting towards the end of his life, and he was getting bitter, and he was like, I don't care what the fuck I say anymore. Now, oh, now I really want to see that show. But it, it, it's, 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 it's very, it's like Pryor's Place, it's very sanitized, George Carlin. Um, but anyway... Uh, and of course, then the, there were the um, spokes characters that failed, like the sponge monkeys for Quiznos, arguably one of the most nightmarish things I've ever seen in my life. Yes, yes, and that yes, and that was I don't even count that as a try because <laughs> it was like that postmodern ironic try. Right. They were like, "Look, we're making spokes people." But they're the most repellent thing ever in the world, designed by our algorithm. Yes. Be just like a combination of all things that that make the human mind reflexively like draw back in horror. Isn't that funny? And everybody said no. Oh, that's horrifying. I I turn it off when I see it. Yeah. There's a reason why we don't we no longer see a puppy monkey baby. Yeah, that was another one. Advertising uh, Mountain Dew. Was it Mountain Dew? Yeah, I think I it think was. I think so. It was, no, it was Mountain Dew Kickstart. I think that that was like one commercial, and they were like, we made a horrible mistake. We, we did wrong. Yep. Uh, do you remember perhaps like my favorite of, of the, the failed ones? The, was it the Ever Ready family or the Duracell family? Yes. The, the, um, they were almost like crash test dummies. They were crash test. They 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 had they must have been made by the same um, special effects house that did the um, Primus video uh, for Winona's Big Beaver. Yes, yes. And all of the commercials revolved around the idea of isn't it funny that somebody died because they didn't use Ever Ready batteries. It was no, gruesome. it wasn't funny. Yeah, it was yeah. Gruesome. Meanwhile, they have these uncanny valley shields yeah. of Yarnell characters. Do mm-hmm. yeah. There's another one for you to Google: shields and Yarnell. Yarnell, yes. They got their they own show just because they can act show. like robots. Yeah, I used to watch it religiously as a kid just to see the robots. Yes, they had their own TV show. This is what we had for entertainment in this. The Starland Vocal Band had their own TV show. Oh, man, I don't remember that. All I remember is they only had Afternoon Delight, and that's it. Yes. A movie, a a song about going home and having a nooner. Yep, yep. Well, that's the 70s, you know? That's all the song had to be. (laughs) It's it's just... 70s were a powerful car. <laughs> but yes, I, I obviously I recommend it to live. I don't know if I would I, w- I would want to st- start somebody who'd never seen Larry Cohen's work before with some of his New York films because his New York films are where I think his heart really shines. You know, something like Hugh the Winged Serpent is relatively easy to grasp and then ease them into some of this stuff. But It's Alive is definitely essential viewing if you're interested in um, low-budget filmmaking as a whole, not just grindhouse cinema. Cause, and study this man's work. This man was a great screenwriter. 
Yeah, I think this movie would go over like with like if say somebody somebody younger who like just got done watching like the last David Lynch or the you know or the 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 return to Twin Peaks and then saw this, I think it would total like it it bypasses all the cheesiness of like it being in another time period you know that sort of thing people talking on their phones and stuff and the the low budget it bypasses that with the surreal aspect of it which i don't think registered is or even maybe if it maybe not wasn't even intended but now it has that that feel of where you just like where you're like okay i'm in that kind of movie i'm just gonna go with the with the atmosphere and the 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 feelings of this and uh, about, you know, I, I know that there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people, and I'm sure some of them are our listeners, in their 20s, let's say, mm-hmm. who will not watch an older movie before the, the date of their birth. Uh, now, well, I would I hope it's not our listeners. I just hope it's their yeah. peers. Well, I, I, I hope, hope our, listeners our listeners are correcting are, that. Are discovering. I hope our listeners are discovering yes. how, how exciting older cinema could be from listening to us. But um, the thing is, yeah, some some films date really badly. That's one of the reasons why I can't stand The Lost Boys. Everyone says what a classic that is, but it's like... The dialogue takes yeah. me out of it when I watch it now. Yeah, exactly. Um but a great film will seem of the time, no matter what time you watch it. Even though the, tech, the, the, the technology is very primitive and it's alive, emotionally, it's still resonance today. I think I, I, I'm thinking it might be aging like a fine wine and improving mm-hmm. with age. And and like and I and I also want to stress that like I'm making this see it is a very serious it does have I I just want to note so we did m- mention the uh, the milkman scene the infamous right. milkman scene which at the time which, I by thought by the way uh, Bernard Harriman called the cue that he wrote for that scene the milkman goeth. <laughs> well, I was thinking they could alternate title this movie Milk Monster. <laughs> but and 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 with the milk theme, another goofy. There seems to be the 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 only point of humor really in this is a running theme of like baby like milk, because yeah. and I like this. I like how like uh, you know they're they're in the house and ever and the husband's becoming aware that the baby's around just because the milk cans keep emptying out yeah and then in a 10 minute time s- period silently somehow that baby empties <laughs> eats the contents of the fridge yeah <laughs> a packed fridge and in, in like 10 minutes without anybody noticing and the other scene that struck me is oh, just a funny goofy scene where the cops on the beat looking for the baby yeah. who were basically just walking around with their nightsticks, rustling everything with their <laughs> nightsticks, like an, like an old Keystone Cops movie. Other than that, there's really no other levity in this movie yeah. outside of the first 
15, 20 minutes. So, so guys, so definitely, I definitely say check out Let the Worker Larry Cohen. Check out this film. Um, the sequel, I've seen the sequel recently. In fact, I'm going to have an article up, up going up on it uh, very soon as of this recording for uh, my blog for Domicile of Dread. And um, it's obvious the first half an hour is very tight. But the rest of the film is just kind of meandering and there's like ideas in it that just aren't quite developed. Um, it also is one of the few films that, that, that star Kathleen Lloyd who looks uncannily like um, uh, Sarah Silverman. Oh, wow. Who is hot. So <laughs> I'll agree with that. Yes, yes. So it was just, it's just, she's in another film, a really awful film, which I'm not going to program with this, called The Car. And she looks, she looks, there, there's one scene where she's taunting the car. And she looks, it sounds so much like Sarah Silverman. It's uncanny. <laughs> the, car, the car was a HBO mainstay. Oh, God. That film. That, that there's a film that needed humor that refused to take that, that yeah. refused to take itself lightly. It needed to be a light film, and it was just so dour. Oh, it's. I would love to have been in the pitch meeting for that one. It's like Jaws, <laughs> but on land, and the shark is possessed by the devil. Can't go wrong. Yes, but um. So I guess we'll go back to our our prime timeline. Yeah, hopefully hopefully we can stay away from these uh, doing eulogies yes. <laughs> on, on the show as much as possible. So all you directors out there, hang in there. So keep us uh, on schedule. So when we get back to our our prime timeline. Uh, after, of course, we saw uh, Eat My Dust, the next film I, I'm going to assign you is... I realize we haven't done a Spaghetti Western yet. And just so happens, my favorite Spaghetti Western is available for streaming on Canopy and other places by Sergio Cabucci. It's called The Great Silence. Uh, you will see... I, I think you're going to be reminded a lot of the Hateful Eight and Django Unchained in this film, because I think that Tarantino got inspired a lot by it. But um, that's for the future, far future. So wait a couple of months, guys, and then we'll catch up. It'll be a while, yeah. Okay. That's how things get all timey-wimey, though, when, you, when we start doing this stuff. It messes me up, man. Okay, so, okay, Virginia, stop messing with that uh, pipe organ. Send us back! Don't have to worry 
our website at two true freaks.com two true freaks is always spelled t-w-o-t-r-u-e-f-r-e-a-k-s you can email two true freaks directly at two true freaks at gmail.com two true freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on itunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Drink your milk, kids. I don't want milk. Milk's for babies. Yeah, babies. Oh, yeah? Well, I happen to know that milk helps build strong bones. So drink up. Well, Mr. Miller told me he never drinks milk. Look at him. Yeah. Hi, kids. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs>